from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters. From inflation to interest rates, whether you're buying or selling, we'll get a handle on the 180-degree swing in Colorado's housing market. Then, an author immerses himself to learn about living off the grid in the San Luis Valley. I want to be a student who learns from you because you know how to stay warm out here in the winter. You know how to get by on less than $1,000 a month. In fact, much less in some cases. How do you do that? I have no idea. Can you show me? Plus, how to think like an aerosol scientist to avoid COVID and seasonal bugs. Then later, Fight or Flight tells the story of how one Colorado woman triumphed to take to the sky. The tools that I used to overcome my childhood trauma were the most important tools that I used flying high-risk operations. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. If you're trying to buy or sell a house or just watching prices in your neighborhood, you probably noticed the housing market in Colorado is really different than it was just six months ago. This morning, we're talking with two local realtors about what this means for you and fellow potential buyers and sellers. Carol Reed is with CJV Real Estate in Denver, and Elizabeth Martinez is with Porchlight. Both of you, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Carol, I understand you just helped the client buy a condo, and you closed earlier this week. How was that experience different than it was just, say, six months ago? Sure. Well, actually, it was a townhouse, um, and I have a very similar story when I was here six months ago um, of first-time home buyers that were looking to get into their first home. Um, we were putting upwards of five offers in a week, uh, getting beat out by tens of thousands mm. of dollars, um, and just beating our heads against the wall. Um this client that I was able to close with on Monday, it was a completely different experience, um, really because we were the only offer that I know that the seller received. Mm. Uh, we were able to ask for a concession right off the bat. Um, we, uh, through the inspection process, there were items that we asked for them to fix, which they did. Uh, we actually got a home warranty out of the deal as well. Wow. <laughs> um, there were no appraisal gap considerations, um, and it was it was really a, a smooth transaction all the way from start to finish. Um, but uh, again, just being able to go in and not have that fierce competition that we had seen earlier in the year made all the difference in the world for this buyer. So more of a buyer's market right now? We're getting there. I wouldn't say we're there quite yet. <laughs> okay. Um, but definitely you're starting to see a shift in power. Buyers are being able to yield a little bit more of, uh, you know, their their fist in when they're going in and, and demanding a little bit more. They're not throwing every single penny they have at a transaction. They're able to take their time, be patient, find the right house, uh, and then also negotiate negotiate more with the sellers. And the smart sellers are the ones who are willing to negotiate as well. Mm, pretty encouraging. Yeah. Maybe some people will jump in now hearing <laughs> these words from you. So Elizabeth, 
How should buyers adjust their expectations right now? Uh, Can you suggest any strategies? Well, the buyers are realizing they have more negotiation power by the fact that they may not be in a multiple offer situation. So every situation we have to strategize is that independent house may or may not have multiple offers. There still are multiple offers going on in this market. Mm. It really depends on if the house is priced accordingly, and that's another subject. But if the house is priced right and it shows well, there may still be multiple offers on that house. So the strategy is going to be different from that of there's no offers. It's been on the market for three weekends. They haven't done a price reduction. There are certain time frames of strategies of what we should implement next. And so uh, you're telling people that they may get a house under listing price? Possibly. It all depends on if the seller overpriced it to begin with, because if they are pricing it according to what their neighbor got down the street three months ago, six months ago, they are technically overpriced because even though the seller got 50000 above list price, doesn't mean that the house is worth that price when it's now on the market with the higher interest rates. So we have to make those adjustments based on the time. Correct. Elizabeth, what is your advice right now when it comes to interest rates? Like, should buyers lock in a rate? So we say marry the house, date the rate. So you want to lock in the house, but then you can refinance once we do hit this recessionary period when interest rates tend to come down. It just depends on where they get to. You know, if they get to 8%, 9%, then if it comes down, what does that look like later on? We just don't know. But at this point, if they locked in a rate two months ago, they would have been in a better position than where they would be today. So marry the house and date the rate. (laughs) I like that. I like that. And I was in the market a year ago, and so I definitely can uh, speak to the value (laughs) of that. So, Carol, in what ways is this market good for buyers right now? Well, as I mentioned before, it gives them a, a, a much larger opportunity to take their time, to be patient. We are seeing inventory levels rise. Um, we are looking at uh, active living, active listings that are about three and a half times more than they were six months ago, which is great. Um, so that's allowing buyers to just see more, see more homes. They're not asked to just jump on the first thing that comes live on the market. Um, They also have an opportunity at this point, like I said, is to ask for concessions, Mm. um, to negotiate the price up front, um, to work with the seller with regard to inspection items that they want to um, have fixed or want a concession for in the end. I think that power that they're able to um, really demonstrate is is being shown right now in the market. Um, At the end of October, I think there were about... About 58% of the homes had seen price reductions. So it really shows that buyers are taking their time. And those that do are then able to work with sellers on prices that are, are more reasonable for, at least for the buyers. I know the sellers are being disappointed day in and day out as, as time goes on, especially compared to uh, the springtime when prices were just outrageous and mm. and and definitely being sold for overlist price. We're not seeing that at this point. 
point. So I think it, it gives a lot of hope to buyers right now. Elizabeth, how have you seen the competition for buying change? Like, are there buyers in the market over the past two or three years who are no longer competing for these homes? Yes and no. Um, it took everybody a step back when interest rates had jumped up so high because when we started at 3.5%, which that's where it was for pretty much the last two and a half years, wow. and then starting around Easter time is when we had our first rate increase. And the rate increases have been anywhere from a half a percent to sometimes a full percent. And at a full percentage rate, that's $400 more a month on average that somebody would pay per month. So if the interest rate went up three times, that's $1,200 more a month Wow! on top of what they would have been already paying. So it's a hard pill to swallow to say, oh, what I could have afforded a few months ago is no longer the same house. And so when you have to go from looking at an $800,000 house to a $600,000 house, they just don't look the same. So buyers are taking a step back and trying to get used to that. Although my new buyers that are new to the marketplace, they didn't have that sweet, sweet candy of low rates. Mm. So they're just stepping in, realizing what their price point will be. So those are the ones that are moving forward. Mm -hmm. The ones that kind of missed the wave, if you will, are the ones that are continuing to rent or they are saying, well, we will wait until this comes down. And a lot of times those are the ones that miss the opportunity. I see Carol over there nodding in yes, agreement. Absolutely. Let, let's talk about trying to sell homes right now. The market was so good for so long for sellers, as we've talked about, and they were getting more money than they asked for. They didn't even have to make improvements and they would just get a buyer. So, Carol, what's your advice for sellers now and how has it changed in, say, six months um, since you were last with us on Colorado Matters. Oh, sure. Well, for sellers at this point, the important thing is to price conservatively. They really need to kind of forget the day, the golden age of, of the springtime where we did see the homes going um, off the shelf at, at much higher rates than, than what the list price was. Um, right now, it's really important for them to take a look at their home, their property, to make what uh, updates they can to make it shine, make it stand out for the for the buyers that are out there looking. But then again, just being able to price conservatively. Um, they are having the opportunity of building um, uh, that audience with buyers. And if they are thinking that they're going to get the higher price that we saw earlier in the year, they're just going to miss out on that opportunity because buyers are taking their time. They are reevaluating. They are looking actually for better deals, yeah. quite honestly. Well, we, you all touched on this already, but let's just go back to, so all of us have marveled at the prices that homes have sold for in the past few years. And there's definitely a sentiment out there, like sentiment out there, like, I can't believe that house sold for that much. And of course, it makes you kind of wonder, like, if your own house is worth a certain amount of money. And Elizabeth, are those days just completely over? Should we just stop thinking that our houses are worth so much? Well, we're taking a step back. Um, if you are looking at like a computer-generated valuation, um, it's not always accurate because there's so many nuances in what's going on in the seasonality of things. Um, but the sellers, 
we're not playing the stock market. It's, you know, you're not trying to sell within a year. So it's really a long-term game with real estate. And we are going to take a little bit of a dip. I say that the sellers that that sold in the last two and a half years won the lottery. Mm -hmm. You know, they definitely cashed out at the right time. People try to time the market, and really there's no way of doing that because there's so many circumstances outside of our control that can shift in an instant. Um, So those that sold did well. But now moving forward, if you have to sell for a job change or you need to move up into a bigger house or whatever your life circumstance is, we have to strategize better to figure out, well, how do we price it? Because your neighbor got 100000 above list price, but only one person bought that house. The other 20 offers weren't making that same offer. Mm. So your house was only worth what that buyer was willing to pay at that time, and it was all inflated by these low interest rates. As we wrap up, uh, Elizabeth, let's finish with your predictions. When do you expect another shift? So our market is going more into our traditional seasonality, whereas, again, going back to the two and a half years, we did not have any of that. It was an upward trajectory the whole entire time. And then we generally have a shift come the summer, which we did, but we had our shift closer to Easter because of the interest rates ticking up. And we're going into our normal holiday seasonal shift. So after Halloween, we turn into a different shift. And then usually white hot winter we didn't have. And now it should shift again in the spring. All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but Carol and Elizabeth, thanks to you both for joining us on Colorado Matters again. And uh, again, Carol Reed is with CJV Real Estate. Elizabeth Martinez is with Porchlight Group. When we come back, we explore life off the grid in Colorado's San Luis Valley. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. When the world changes, come to CPR News for updates on what's happening. We'll keep you connected each and every day. Just tap on your phone to listen with the Colorado Public Radio app or come to CPR.org. Author Ted Conover immerses himself in his work, from hopping freight trains for four months to spending a year as a prison guard, and for his latest book, Living Off the Grid in the San Luis Valley. It's called Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge. He spoke with CPR's Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce. Ted Conover, so your books are a result of you basically just upending your life uh, so that you can sort of live as close as you can to the lives of the people you wish to chronicle. And so in 2017, you decide you're going to split your time between the Bronx and somewhere smack dab in the middle of the wide open San Luis Valley, where there are just these huge tracts of land that have been subdivided into these relatively small plots, maybe usually a couple acres. And they often could be purchased for less than $10,000, but they have no services at all. They don't have any sewer, water, or electric. Tell us how you landed on this landscape and this lifestyle as the subject of your latest book. So I guess for me, it started in South Park, which I visited regularly with a friend whose family had a place there when we were in high school. I happened to go back there for 5280 Magazine to write an essay about South Park and happened into this area south of Hartzell, which I think uh, you know pretty well, where there's a similar kind of history of subdivision of 
these five-acre lots made in the 1970s out of old ranches. And they were often sold by mail or television even, $50 down, $50 a month. And uh, it was pretty impossible to buy land for no money down or for that little down at the time. And many of them sold, but very few people ever moved out there because it's super hard to live without those services. And then in the San Luis Valley, the situation is the same, but several times larger. So in Costilla County, where I write about, there's about 45,000 of these five-acre lots. And there's such an overabundance that they have not appreciated in value since they were created, basically. Which is great if you're a person with very limited resources who wants to own their own place. And I have a sister who lives in Denver who happened to be visiting a group in Alamosa called La Puente, which had an outreach program that tried to keep folks out in these old subdivisions from becoming homeless when the weather gets cold. And uh, she shared some photos, and I thought, wow, this is Colorado? Like, people are living like this here? Because it's so bare bones, as you know. And I thought, ah, it's worth a visit. So long story short, I ended up volunteering for La Puente as an outreach worker, met people, told them I'm a writer, got to like a lot of them. I just like it. It's a great counterpoint to my city life out east. What struck me in reading about your time volunteering for La Puente is the different sorts of challenges, La Puente being an organization which helps low-income people, has to contend with versus what we think of as being these low-income service providers in urban areas. So why don't you describe what's a typical day volunteering for La Puente look like for these folks who are serving those who live out on the flats, as it's called? Yeah. So the big challenge with this kind of outreach is actually meeting people because a lot of people are out there because they would prefer not to be met. They're not looking for a lot of connections and they're suspicious of strangers, especially if they're growing a little marijuana, because that's something of value that can be stolen. And then there's just some paranoia. Maybe it's part of our times. Maybe it's part of living in a place like that where a lot of your neighbors are in need, right? Like there's a lot of great people, but there's also people with addictions who are needy. And so the first challenge is, yeah, how do you talk to people? And I was lucky enough to uh, connect with a La Puente worker named Matt Little, who uh, he's a veteran. He's done a lot of rough living himself, and uh, he kind of went through the steps with me. Speaking of earning trust, you're a college professor from New York yeah, City. Exactly. You, you, you speak about folks looking at you in disbelief when you say that you read the New York Times <laughs> yourself. When you do one of these big immersive projects, what is your process for earning trust? I knew that people out there, if they Googled me, they would, if they were of a certain cast of mind or a certain political bent, they might think I'm the enemy, right? Because maybe I... Uh, Maybe I voted for Obama. Maybe I don't think Hillary is awful. Maybe who knows where I'm coming from. But a lot of people out there have ideas about people like me, but have never met one. And so the first thing is just to show them I'm a I'm a guy. I'm a I'm a person. I I have very little knowledge of the way you live, and I'm trying to learn. So my approach is I'm not the Mr. Smarty educated 
guy, I want to be a student who learns from you because you know how to stay warm out here in the winter. You know how to get by on less than $1,000 a month. In fact, much less in some cases. How do you do that? I have no idea. Can you show me? You know, I have a lot to learn. So I really, I try to be open about my own degree of ignorance and I try to be totally non-judgmental. People are embarrassed by the dirt on their clothes or the fact they haven't bathed in a while. They're embarrassed by the mess around their place because there's no trash collection out there. And, and it's windy. And the wind, if you leave anything out and it gets caught in the wind, trash results. Anyway, I'm emphatic. I am not judging. I want to learn. And if you repeat that, if you come back and if you ask questions that seem to reflect that, I think you can make progress. Yeah. And you put some skin in the game, too. You were out there for a couple of years, but then you went ahead, you bought your own tract of land for $15,000, and it really was probably only that expensive because it had a septic and a well, which is a rarity out there. And then you put your own $4,000 trailer on that property, and you wanted to, to do it for real. Well, yeah. And I've got to say, it's not as comfortable as other places I might go if I had spare time, but it's so interesting. And it's, I've got to say, just being in that part of the world with all that space, all that beauty is a pleasure for me. So there's a downside, which is, you know, you're dealing with human struggles. Um, not everybody's at their best all the time, right? And there's some stuff that's a little ugly. But there's a lot of beauty in the, in the natural world and also in, in people looking out for each other. There's just a lot of great people out there. So um, it takes time, and it's now been five years since I started. But that's, to me, if you have the luxury of time, you can get beyond the Q&A that begins a lot of journalism, right? Like the very necessary initial interview, which in these times of all this pressure for journalists is often all you have time for. You know, if, if you can extend that, you can go deeper and get something better. There are pockets of this kind of living in different parts of the state. You mentioned South Park, south of Hartzell and I have had the chance to do a little reporting out there in Park County, and, and our listeners have really responded to a couple stories that we've done featuring a man named Jim McKinney, who uh, he picked himself up from living on the streets in Denver, and he scraped together enough money to buy a small tract of land. And, and now he, he lives basically in a covered-up hole in the ground while he builds something more permanent. It's peaceful and quiet, and I mean, the sunsets right between the, that's the divide, all these peaks way out there. I mean, it's just beautiful. There really is a kind of opportunity out here, and there is a certain romance, and I think you capture it really well in this one passage of the book, and I'll have you read this highlighted part. <laughs> sure. What must have seemed like invasion and apocalypse to the indigenous people, of course, came to be celebrated as a beginning by the Spanish, Mexicans, and then Americans who saw the area as empty a wilderness frontier that settlers might tame with farms and ranches. What one sees today is a stunning natural space that is also real estate, raw land available for purchase at a very low price, a landscape upon which even a person of very modest means can imagine leaving a mark. 
It's also very different than the Wild West, say, of the 1800s or, say, the Wild West of our imagination in that the people who are going out there aren't going out there because they might strike it rich, are they? No. Uh, as one of the old ranchers out there said to me, nobody ever got rich in the San Luis Valley. And I have not done extensive research to confirm that's true, but it's hard to figure out anybody who has. And no one right, thinks they're going to strike gold, though some still try. Um, it's more, I think, they are reenacting this frontier dream of settlement, this this fantasy of being the first person to live on that land, which becomes your land. And that that's very meaningful, right? Even if it's even if it's windblown and dusty and cold and there's no wood around and you know, there's a reason these lots are so numerous and so many are unsold. Because it can be beautiful, but it's also – it's such a challenge. But the the passion that people have for their land, you, you speak about folks who – right, these are often just – it's a couple of acres. But people will refer to them as their farm or yeah. their ranch or whatever. Mm. They take great pride in having that. Yeah, absolutely. And in, and the, they love not having a landlord, not paying utility companies, and being far from authority. Like, you know, the county still wants permits. They want you to have a septic. They want you to pay for a driveway. They want you to pay for an address, and that rankles people. But, you know, it's a poor county. They have to fill their coffers some way. Taxes are super low. But, yeah, I think people enjoy that idea of freedom, freedom from government and oversight. And this is such a tough existence. And it almost sounds glib to say, but it's not this uncommon occurrence out there where you'll be speaking with somebody out on the flats and they'll go and check on one of their friends and the friend is just dead. You know, they might yeah. be frozen to death yeah. or some other cause of death out there in their trailer or something like that. You recount somebody basically suffocating to death, almost certainly from COVID. This is a very difficult existence to scrape out there. Oh, yeah. You're far from medical treatment. It's super hard to, you know, get somebody to come. And then it gets so cold and people run out of fuel. And so friends and neighbors check on each other all winter. But I, I heard so many stories of people burning their fences, burning any wood they could find, just burning a little barn just to stay warm. And that's when you see that this is also different from the frontier of the 19th century in that you know, the next step for a lot of these people might be La Puente's homeless shelter in Alamosa. And La Puente would rather not have it filled up in the winter with people who couldn't make it on the flat. So that was the goal of our outreach was to make them self-sustaining and try to prevent sickness or death by people who don't feel any connection, right? Or don't have the gas money sometimes to get into town for medication. Yeah, you, there are a lot of people with a lot of medical issues. There's a lot of frailties. The best way to live out there is if you have some kind of um, SSI or other benefits coming in, military, pension, whatever, so that you can subsist on. That seems the most sustainable because it's really hard to find work in these places. And then you get a job and your car breaks down and you lose the job. And that's just a cycle that repeats over and over. But for these folks who are adults, they know what they're getting into. The thing that 
leaves me with the most mixed feelings reading your book is reading about the children living out there. And so the family you spend the most time profiling, the Grubers, you have a mother and father and they have five daughters. And then these girls, they come across as kind of wildly independent little firecrackers. They can name all of the plants all around them. And so in that way, they have this deep knowledge of the land, but you worry about their formal education and you worry about their future, don't you? Yeah. So there are families with kids out there. Some of them attend local public schools and the buses are provided by those schools, but not always dependably. But uh, others have good enough internet that they can um, do the Branson online curriculum on laptops that the state provides, right? There's ways you can be homeschooled out there. But the Gruber girls were essentially homeschooled. They, they don't have uh, internet laptops. They didn't attend school in town. And so are they going to be uh, well-educated? I don't think so. Depends on your definition. Um, on the other hand, it's a super loving family. Like they're with mom and dad every day. The sisters look out for each other. They will, I think, look back fondly on their childhoods, which is saying a lot in this day and age. And there are all kinds of right, like ways to say, are these children being deprived? And even some people out there say, yeah, you know, there's people who are my neighbors who say, you shouldn't raise kids out here. It's not a good place for kids. But I don't think the Gruber girls would agree with that. And um, when I see that family, I see, I see, you know, a good lesson in looking out for each other and being good to each other. Going back to the idea of opportunity. So at one point, a magazine story you published leads to a reality TV producer coming out and speaking with some of the folks you live near, including the Gruber family. Now, man, like that's a really tricky proposition, isn't it? It really is. It is because, yeah, reality TV has a huge appetite for new topics, as you know. And they love frontier, Alaska, gold mining, off-grid scenarios. There's such an appetite for that. And I was excited that the people I wrote about might make some money from this. Like good money? Yeah. Could make it like one of my people out there said, well, he wasn't sure he wanted to do it because he didn't have a septic system. And if the county found out, he's in trouble. And the producer said, hey, you'll make enough in an episode to pay for your septic. And you can have it in before the show airs. So sounds good. But the producer never gave the green light. So it, it remains a possibility. Sure. Um, but complicated, right? Because as you say, you know, maybe that might be one of the last remaining opportunities that you could strike it rich out yeah. living on the flats be, being something like that. But at the same time, those types of shows thrive on drama and conflict and playing those things up. Yep. And it, it actually sounded to me that that was something that this community understood as well. And they understood the the give and take that would have to come with something like that. I really think they do. Uh, people in remote places are on TikTok. You know, they're watching reality TV. They're plugged in. They're on social media. I, like they get it. They get it. And they know they're, some of them are like afraid. Oh, heck, you know, if, if they do a story about me, they're probably going to find out about how my daughter's mad at me or how I 
you know, how I have three warrants out for me. And, and, but people's eyes are open and that's their choice to make. You now have spent time out there for half a decade and you call this the closest you have come to, quote, going native uh, <laughs> in your work on a book. In your past, you know, you inhabit these lives for a while and then, and then you move on to something else. I mean, do you see that happening this time as well? Not yet. I've got to say, yeah, the day I quit my job at Sing Sing Prison was one of the happiest days of my life. I was so relieved. For a, a book where you were a uh, prison guard for a year. That's right. I worked at Sing Sing. And uh, that was just so stressful every day. This, you know, it can be stressful, but it's also been a great experience. And yeah, unlike my other projects, riding the rails or traveling with migrants, it's, it's not over. I like coming home to Colorado and... Uh, and I like being out there. So uh, we will see. Mr. Conover, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Author Ted Conover speaking with CPR's Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce. Conover's new book is called Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge. When we come back, how to think like an aerosol scientist to keep the triple-demic at bay. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. So many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. The season for respiratory bugs is here, and it's looking like a rough one with the so-called triple-demic of COVID-19, the flu, and the virus known as RSV. A key way to help avoid them, consider things like ventilation and crowds when you go out. In other words, think like an aerosol scientist. CPR's John Daly and Paolo Schausita teamed up to dig into this state of mind and shared their findings with May Ortega. So I've seen you both around the office lately and you've been carrying around these like little boxes. First off, can you describe for our listeners what these boxes look like? Okay, so these boxes are really small. They fit in the palm of your hand and right from the get go, you will immediately notice a big giant number. And what does this little box do? So these are carbon dioxide monitors. It updates regularly. It measures carbon dioxide. Uh, this one costs $250 on Amazon, and it's endorsed by scientists. And some scientists think it's a good way to get a decent measure of air quality. Hmm. One of those scientists is Jose Luis Jimenez. He's a chemistry professor at CU. He carries a CO2 monitor everywhere he goes, like when he goes places with his family or travels to his hometown in Spain. Recently, we met in a location many folks might go this time of year. Welcome aboard RTD commuter rail. This is the 61st Ampenia Station. We rode an RTD train out to DIA. Now, a good baseline is outdoors, which is about 400 on the CO2 monitor. Now, because we are indoors, it's a thousand part per million more. The monitor was reading at 930 initially, and then it went up the longer we spent on the train. Okay, so then if you're indoors, generally the number gets higher? 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, long story short, the higher the number, the more carbon dioxide is in the air. So the lower the number, the better. It's a big piece in the variety of factors that make up the risk of contracting an airborne virus like COVID. Or like RSV and flu, which we know are spiking right now. There are a lot of variables about how you might get infected, and we'll get into that a bit later. But on that train ride, Jose Luis Jimenez told me to think about aerosols, particles in the air, like secondhand cigarette smoke. So in a poorly ventilated, crowded indoor space, the higher the number, the higher the percentage. The air that we're breathing has been in someone else's lungs, and now we're breathing it in. Okay. Love knowing that. Uh, so it's giving us a reading right now, Paolo, right, that uh, we're in the studio. Exactly. Uh, it's 773, which is still pretty good. Okay. Why does knowing all this even matter? So it's the holiday season and we're all traveling. No one wants to risk their holiday plans by getting sick or spreading sickness to others. So, May, we've been living our lives as normal and taking the monitor out with us. Uh, you want to know what we learned? Sure. Am I going to be scarred for life? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Tell me anyway. So we met Jose, the aerosol scientist, up in Boulder where he teaches. And the night we went was the Friday before Halloween. So all kinds of people were out in costumes. And it was also the night before CU's homecoming game, and there's a big rally on Pearl Street. Okay, so there's a band there, there's lots of people, there's a lot of things going on. Yeah, and not a lot of N95 masks. No one seems too worried about respiratory viruses. So we went to a restaurant just off Pearl Street, and it was relatively full, and the number there was above 1,000. Which is definitely not great for a place where, where people are eating and talking without masks. Ventilation is not great here. That's right, not great because there are no windows or doors open, and we know that helps. Oh, man, I eat at a lot of restaurants indoors with no anything open, so that's good to know. Um, did you guys go anywhere else on Pearl Street? Yeah, we also went to a basement arcade and bar, which was also relatively full. Yeah, music was pumping. Folks were playing air hockey and pool. They were throwing darts, drinking. They were talking loudly because the music was so loud. And just like the restaurant, the number on the CO2 monitor was quickly up above 1,100. That's relatively high. But that's nowhere near the kind of numbers Jose has seen over the course of the pandemic. What's the highest number you've seen? The, the highest that I have measured is 5,000. He said he saw that 5,000 level while riding a train between Madrid and Barcelona. I've seen 3,000 in airplanes, in buses frequently. And I've seen two, 3,000 in restaurants. But again, it's, it's not every time. Okay, wow. So I'm getting the general concept here. High numbers are bad equals poor air quality. And the worse that that air quality is, is potentially a higher risk of catching a virus. You said you brought the monitors around as you're just out and about living your lives. What kinds of levels did you see when you weren't with Jose? The highest number I saw was in a completely packed coffee house in Boulder. And I saw similarly higher numbers at Trader Joe's, but places like larger grocery stores and big malls had numbers typically under 1,000, which is pretty good. And when I was in a King Supers recently, the reading was below 900, wasn't really too crowded. But by far the highest I saw was in this uh, crowded indoor bar, an older building. There were no N95 masks. There were no doors or windows open. And that number was above 3,500. So what do institutions like RTD or DIA say about these monitors and folks like Jose and others who are posting their photos on Twitter of their readings? 
you know, this has become kind of a global movement for aerosol researchers like Jose and RTD said that it agrees that CO2 monitoring gives an indication of the ventilation capability in a space and that that is an indicator of air quality. DIA said it's installing new CO2 sensors all around the airport as part of renovations there, and we'll post them on thermostats that the public can see. Also, uh, RTD said its trains are well ventilated and readings on a CO2 monitor don't correspond directly to risk of infection. It corresponds to the number of people breathing in the space. Uh, meantime, you know, it's Jose's dream to have one of these in every building, every airplane, every train, so people can see the numbers for themselves. And what do infectious disease experts say about Jose's dream? Well, Dr. Michelle Barron with UC Health says CO2 monitoring is a decent proxy for measuring relative air quality, but she also told us that there are a lot of variables in how someone might pick up COVID-19 or flu or RSV. Maybe the air quality is fine, but somebody sneezed and just touched a handle that you grab on and then you rub your nose. It's how people get sick pretty commonly. So I think it's one piece of this big puzzle. So what is the big takeaway here? What do you guys want our listeners to know? Well, it's respiratory bug season, and everyone wants to avoid getting sick, avoid passing bugs along to others. And one great way to do that is to think about the spaces you're in. Yeah, so be careful in crowded indoor spaces. You've been hearing that a lot. If you're having a big holiday meal, if you're in a car or taking a cab with other people or an Uber, crack a door, crack a window, get some fresh air in that room. That really helps. And if you're in a crowded setting like a train, airport, airplane, etc., wear a good quality mask to protect yourself and others. CPR reporters and amateur aerosol scientists John Daly and Paulo Shalsata speaking with me, Ortega. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The stretch of Highway 550 between Silverton and Uray takes drivers over Red Mountain Pass at 11,000 feet without guardrails on its narrowest sections. The road clings precariously to the edge of plunging cliffs and sees as much as 25 feet of snow each winter. It's terrified many a soul and taken a few. Yet wagon drivers paid to use the road in the late 1800s to get valuable ore from mines to market. When automobiles came along, few believed one could make the trip. But in 1911, a doctor went from Ure to Ironton in a Model T for a house call. After the road was paved in the 50s, it became a tourist destination. And since then, many travelers have braved the treacherous yet exhilarating 20-mile drive. It's called the Million Dollar Highway. But the awe-inspiring views and bragging rights to driving one of the world's most unforgettable roads are priceless. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Sheets and Giggles. She overcame childhood trauma to take to the sky. The story of the first female pilot to work for Colorado Parks and Wildlife is the subject of a documentary featured in this year's Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival. It's called Fight or Flight. Denise Joy is the trailblazing pilot, and the documentary's director is Lindsay Hagen. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Tell us, Denise, in your own words, what is this film about? It's a lot of things. It's about working and being a female pilot in the industry. And but I think most importantly, the undercurrent of the story is my healing journey and how I the tools that I used that I gained to overcome my childhood trauma were the most important tools that I use uh, flying high-risk operations. Tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day is like in this role. 
So my favorite part of my job is in the fall when we stock Ohio Pine Lakes and we do that with the aircraft and we um, drop trout into the Cirque Lakes, uh, the 14,000 foot mountain lakes um, in Colorado. And that can take anywhere from two to four weeks. Uh, during different times of the year, we have a lot of projects with wildlife survey, transporting wildlife, whether that be waterfowl in the winter, um, we do deer, elk, pronghorn in the summer, and we have other projects where we have mountain lions that are collared, where we need to track them with telemetry. It's a really diverse job. Lindsay Hagen, you are the director of this film, and just in itself, it's history. It's the first female pilot employed by Colorado Parks and Wildlife. But as we see, this film starts from there, but it's a bigger story. What is the story in your view? I love that you noticed that. And that was something that was super intentional uh, in my storytelling practice was opening the film on the surface level. So, you know, surface level, we see Denise as this amazing, super capable, talented pilot who has years and years and years of experience. And she's a total badass. <laughs> and that was what I thought, you know, when I met Denise. And of course, as you get to know people, you start to understand their circumstances and, um, the things in their life that they've had to overcome. And that is where I really gained such a tremendous respect and admiration for Denise's story. So I tried to look at Denise's story at a deeper level beyond what you see on a LinkedIn profile or a Facebook profile. Um, and I think we can all relate to that. There's the story you see at face value, and then there's the deeper, more nuanced story that got you there. And, um, and I wanted to celebrate that journey because I think there's so much strength by sharing that story. And I read more in the film that in an industry where matters of mental well-being are rarely discussed, Denise wants to raise awareness about how difficult events and experiences in early life shape health and relationships. She aims to encourage a culture of openness and support in aviation around whole health awareness and to stand in solidarity with survivors of sexual abuse and adverse childhood experiences. It sounds like that's really important to you, Denise, to talk about your job, but also to expand on so many other themes. Well, I just went to this conference, a safety conference, and it was the first time that discussions on, you know, pilot well-being, whether that be physical, mental, um, is really starting to be discussed, especially after COVID. And um, I think we were all influenced on the mental health level during that time. And from, from my experience, you know, I went through adverse childhood experiences, which you learn about in the film. And, um, you know, 60% of Americans have had at least one adverse childhood experience. And what we're finding is, or what I've found is that actually can shape your nervous system. So for me to come over or through that trauma, I had to develop some really key skills on how to sort of self-regulate my nervous system. And those are really important tools that I use as a high-risk pilot. And so I think that the healing that I've done through adverse childhood experiences, I'm, I'm more proud of that than the things that I do flying, you know? Mm. Now, Lindsay, this seems like such a big topic. I mean, you, you know, you start with this premise of the pilot, but then you expand into all these other themes what should the moviegoer expect in this story? There's some really, really beautiful visuals. We were able to get up in the air with Denise for some of these really dramatic 
high alpine fish drops. Um, I was following her in a helicopter with a very talented camera operator. So cinematically, it's something I'm very proud of. And, you know, as a film that will probably end up reaching quite a few folks in the outdoor industry, I felt like it needed to have that factor. I knew it would. That's like the flashy, <laughs> the flashy object. <laughs> and once you're hooked, I, I want people to just open their hearts to the story. Um, and I'm sure it will meet people at very different, um, you know, perspectives and from very different viewpoints wherever you are in your life. But really, Denise has so much strength just putting her story out there. So I would hope the viewer could watch it with an open mind and open heart. It seems like when you think about this film festival, it's really about elevating the voices of women, the stories of women. And how important was that to you as a director to elevate the voice of a woman in all the different ways that uh, we see with Denise in this film? Oh, my gosh, it's a dream. I've been so fortunate to be able to work with Denise and really give this film the tender love and care. You know, we didn't we purposely didn't operate under a strict you know, budget or timeline because her story needed time and it needed time to unfold. When anytime you're working in, you know, a, a trauma space, that journey is still very real. And um, I don't think that ever ends. So having that, that space and openness with Denise to understand where she's at in her journey and how I could best assist, it was really an open learning process for me and, and still is to this day. So it's um it's pretty powerful to work with another woman to help, you know, shape a story that we're both, you know, so equally proud of and something that can hopefully shape culture and open minds and drive discussions. So in a way, it should reverberate outwards, I would hope, to other women in addition to the general public. Denise, I would imagine it's pretty nerve wracking and kind of scary to open yourself up to a mass audience telling your story, letting someone into your life. And when you watch the film, what do you love about it? What stands out to you that you hope others will agree was a great part of the film? Yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, it's the scariest thing I've ever done. But I think this process has also been like an active healing process for me, too. You know, like just trying to find my voice and, you know, how am I going to share this? What am I going to share? You know, um, how vulnerable do I want to be with the audience? You know, that wasn't an easy thing. And I think what I want, what I hope the audience takes away from is that healing isn't just a finite ending to it. It's a process. It's a journey. And um, for me, I'm always curious about my fears. And so for this project, there was so much fear around it, you know, just sharing my story. Um, why is that fear there? You know, and, um, and sort of tapping into that and, and, and wanting that vulnerability because at the same point too, when I was going through my healing journey, I felt alone and I didn't, you know, reach out for help. And so I hope that by sharing my story, I can just make one person, hopefully, not feel so alone. Thank you so much, Lindsay and Denise, for joining us. Thank you. That was director Lindsay Hagen and Colorado Parks and Wildlife pilot Denise Joy, whose story is featured in the documentary film Fight or Flight. You can watch it tomorrow through Sunday as part of a virtual encore of the 35th annual Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival. We'll put a link in the Colorado Matters, Matters podcast at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.